Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Trinity Church in Carryville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, please visit our website, trinity901.com. So there are three things that we're going to look at this morning. The poor, the gospel, and a beautiful thing. The poor, the gospel, and a beautiful thing. Over spring break, my family had the wonderful opportunity to go with my two brothers and their families to Big Sky, Montana, and ski. I haven't skied in many years, so I'm not sure that skiing is the best definition. It was an attempt at skiing. We had a great time, and it was wonderful. And there was one particular day, there were, there were two lifts at the bottom of the basin, and one is the fastest lift in North America. It's called the six-shooter. And Avery and I were skiing alone, and we got on the six-shooter, and I had not been all the way to the top. And so we rode it. I could not believe how fast it was. I could not believe how quickly we got to the top of the mountain. And as we were getting off the six-shooter, you ski forward, and there's just a small hill in front of you. It's nothing impressive. And then you either turn to the left or you turn to the right. And we turned to the right, and I had not been that high on the mountain yet the whole trip. And we turned, and the only way I can describe it is one of the most beautiful scenes that I have ever seen in my life. You are looking out over the Rockies as they, as they just unfold in all their glory and all their beauty in Montana. And Avery and I just stopped. And I wanted to ski. I was ready to ski. But I wanted to look out over the horizon and just take in this beautiful thing. And that's what it was. A beautiful thing. So we come to our text this morning. And the translators use this phrase, and I think it's wonderful, a beautiful thing. What the lady did for Jesus, he says, is a beautiful thing. So let's examine why that is. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, take your word and use it in our hearts and in our souls. Change us. Father, set me aside for my sins are great. May Trinity only hear you speak this morning. Amen. As I said, there are three things we're going to look at. The poor, the gospel, and the beautiful thing. But there are a couple of points that I want to make before we jump into those points. First of all, you see at the very beginning of the passage that it is Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, you're probably familiar with Passover and you think that that encompasses a series of days. But in reality, the Passover is a feast that happens over the course of one day. It is the remembrance of when God delivered Israel from Egypt, from the angel of death, and how they used the blood of the spotless Passover lamb, excuse me, of the, of the young lambs, to provide them protection in their redemption from slavery and Egypt. And so they have come to Jerusalem 
scholars estimate that between 100,000 to 200,000 people have descended upon Jerusalem at this time for the Passover. But it is also the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day feast that also takes place during this time. They clean out their homes of any leavened bread, of anything that is leavened, and they do not eat any leavened bread during the course of this week. And this is a reminder that when God said go, it was time to leave. That they were supposed to leave and depart from Egypt in a hurry, and that there was no time for bread with leaven to rise and to take form and to take shape. It was time for God's people to leave. And so they are remembering these two things at this time of year. We are approaching Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in our own calendar as we approach Easter. There's something else that I want you to see in this passage that we're really not going to touch on in depth, and that's Judas, Judas Iscariot. Mark does a wonderful job of sandwiching the story of the lady who is anointing Jesus and Judas and the desire of the chief priests, the desire of the religious leaders to wrestle Jesus in, to stop Jesus, His ministry, and his teaching. And so in the first couple of passages we see their desire to do this and they make the decision that this is not possible or they don't think it's possible because of the great crowds that have come to Jerusalem for Passover. But then at the end of the passage we see that Judas Iscariot goes to them and makes it possible because he wants to betray Jesus. Do we ultimately know why Judas wanted to do this? The answer is no. Clearly his heart was hard. We, we understand this. It's also, to remind, it's also a reminder to us in the church that not all those who claim to follow Jesus follow Jesus. There's some speculation as to why Judas betrayed Jesus. And when you think about this passage where he immediately goes to the chief priest after Jesus has appreciated the woman who has spent so much time anointing him, it possibly been, could have been an issue of money that J Judas was displeased with Jesus and what he has done and how he has wasted money. There's also a thought by many scholars that Judas, like many of the disciples, believed that Jesus was going to raise up Israelites who would, from a military perspective, overthrow Rome and rescue Jerusalem and save them from occupation. And perhaps at this moment in time, Judas comes to the realization, perhaps in two different directions. A, he's just not going to do this. He is just about other things. We are not going to overthrow the Romans, and I'm not going to have a position of authority in his kingdom, so I am going to turn on him. That's one thought. 
The second thought, possibly, is that Judas is betraying Jesus in order to expedite, in order to speed up this rebellion that is to take place. That if I do this and they come for Jesus, this will bring about the rebellion. This will bring about this military action. Ultimately, we don't know. But those are ideas, those are concepts behind what Judas may have been thinking. So there are three things that I want us to look at. The first is the poor in verse 5. If you'll go back in your text and you'll glance at that, it says, For this anointment could have, excuse me, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. So 300 denarii would have been the wages for an average man working at that time in the ancient Middle East. Now, if you're anything like me, your first thought is, how in the world could perfume or cologne be worth what a person would make, an average person in Carterville, in the course of the year? That seems insane. But it was a little bit different back then. This ointment, probably myrrh, This perfume was very special. And you can really think of it more like a 401k. That it was the savings that a family would have in the investment of this fragrance. And so here's what she is doing. She is bringing her family's life savings in order to anoint the body of Jesus for the cross that he is about to experience that she understands who he is she understands his worth she understands the beauty that is Jesus Christ and she looks to her family's life savings and she says this belongs to my savior it all belongs to him he is worthy of this Because He is the one that procures for us grace and forgiveness and mercy and love. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's who Jesus is. And if you think back a couple of chapters, it reminds us of the widow who gave all because of her love for God. Mark is trying to tell us something here. That when we rightly understand who Jesus is and we understand the kingdom that He is bringing and we understand our place in that kingdom and our relationship to Him, He is our older brother. That when we know all of this and it sinks down into the deepest recesses of our heart, we will be changed people who are willing to give all for Him. Changed people willing to give all for Him. Jesus says that the poor will always be with us. The poor will always be here until my kingdom comes in all its fullness. And I am right here, right now. I am the Son of God. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Word that has come in the flesh. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am King. I am worthy of worship because of what I have done for you. 
And so it's a reminder to me as we think about this expensive gift given for Christ and the people in the room mocking the fact that she has done this and it should be given to the poor. Here's 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. Jesus was in the throne room of grace. Jesus was in the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit. He was, he had everything. It's the most incredible place that exists. And we will be called into the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son one day. We will get to experience this. But He left this throne room. He left the Father's presence the Holy Spirit's presence, in order to come here. So He left the most perfect place that exists to take on flesh and enter into the hardship and brokenness and fallen status of the society and the world in which we live. This is all we've ever known. All we have ever known is rebellion and lostness and sin, and depravity, and that creation groans because of this. All we've ever known is war, and conflict, and family strife, and stress, and issue upon issue. It's all we've ever known. But Jesus descends into this, and He takes on flesh. He becomes poor. Because we're poor. So that we can become rich. Because He is rich. So because Jesus is perfect, because He obeys the covenant perfectly, He receives all the blessings of the covenant and guess what He does for us through faith? He gives us those blessings. We become rich. So let that be a good word to you this morning. A word that... Joy wells up in your heart. I am not poor. I am rich. Because I belong to Jesus. And He is worthy of worship. Because He pours out the blessings of the covenant upon me. Now in part, yes. But one day, fully. Complete. Secondly, the gospel. In verse 9... Jesus says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And that is what is happening this day. We are proclaiming what she did for Jesus and anointing His body as He anticipates the cross, as He anticipates suffering for us and redeeming us and going to the tomb. And it's being proclaimed all over the world as the gospel goes forth throughout the world through generations. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, when Jesus says the gospel, what is the gospel? We know that it means good news. 
But what kind of good news is it? I think as believers, as followers of Christ, something that we need to have rooted in our soul is a good and sturdy definition of the gospel. A definition that we can go back to over and over again. Yes, you come to this place on the Lord's Day to hear the gospel preached. But the gospel is something that you need to preach to yourself every single day. Sometimes every single hour. Sometimes every single minute. The gospel is good news. It is great news. It is medicine for the heart. So what is a good definition of the gospel? Here is a three-part definition. First, the gospel is the Son of God entering time and space on a rescue mission for God's people in submission to the Father's will in fulfillment of His covenant promises. Secondly, the gospel can be defined as through His faithful, perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection. We, God's people, are justified of our sins and adopted into the family of God as His sons and daughters. And thirdly, the gospel is the victory that we have in Jesus, our older brother, who secures on the cross perfect shalom. All things are being renewed to God's glory. I will tell you as a child, as a college student, and maybe even as a young adult on some level, if you had asked me what the gospel was, I would have told you, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I am saved. And that's correct. There is nothing wrong about what I just said. But in this wider definition that I have given you, I did not understand the cosmic nature of the gospel, meaning shalom. A Jewish word that means fullness, completeness of peace. When Jesus returns as the conquering king, he will bring peace to all things. When Jesus establishes kingdom in fullness, there will no longer be war. There will no longer be hostilities. There will no longer be grief-stricken parents of chronically ill children. There will no longer be troubled marriages and addictions. There will no longer be financial issues. There will no longer be loneliness. There will no longer be any of these type things. It will all be wiped away. Jesus is renewing all things unto Himself. So the Father's love for us is so great that not only does He save us in the here and now, but He is saving and redeeming all things unto Himself. That doesn't mean all people. He is saving God's people and He is renewing the cosmos. A new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell in perfection forever as Adam and Eve before the fall walked in the presence of God in, in His holiness and in perfection. 
So the gospel is huge. It has a huge impact. It means many, many things. And here's the good news for us this morning. This gospel, if you are in Christ, belongs to you. The forgiveness of sins belongs to you. The renewal and recreation of all things belongs to you. You are a part of the bigger picture. God completely understands what is going to happen and He is going to fulfill all things in perfection for His glory and for you because you are a son and daughter of the King. So we trust in His providence. We trust in the gospel. We trust in His sovereignty. Life is hard. Life is challenging. But in the midst of that, we cling to the good news that is the gospel. And then finally in verse 6. Jesus says, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I love that. A beautiful thing to me. Now, what she is doing is anointing Jesus' body as he is marching to the cross and that he and he knows that Roman execution is his fate. Now, this is a reminder of 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. If you want to go back into the Old Testament and look at this passage with me, again, it's 2 Kings 9, 1 through 3. And this story involves Elisha and Jehu. And scholars believe that there is a connection between the anointing of Jesus' body for Calvary and this anointing of Jehu in 2 Kings. Let me read for you beginning in verse 1. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, Tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of olive oil with you, and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nemeshi. Go to him. Get him away from his companions and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. Don't delay. This woman has come to bear testimony to the fact in anointing His head that Jesus is the King of Israel. We have talked about this in our journey through the Gospel of Mark. We have seen time and time again that Jesus is declaring Himself as the true and only King of Israel, that He is the true and only Israelite, that He is the only one who has been faithful to the covenant that God made with His people. That He is the great King from on high who has come to rescue His people. And so when she comes to do this, when she comes to pour out her life savings on His head, yes, it has great significance for who Jesus is as King, but it is also a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful act of worship. A woman who has no regard in ancient Middle Eastern society. They are not of any great significance in that culture. 
She comes to Jesus. She anoints Him for His kingship and for His death. And Jesus says, this is a beautiful thing and you will be spoken of forever. She understood who Jesus is. She understood His importance, His significance, His beauty. And she worships Him. And so when we look at this passage, the takeaway for us this morning is, and hear this, our worship of King Jesus is beautiful to Him. It's beautiful. Look, if you're anything like me, I come to this place on the Lord's Day. I come here and I feel sinful. I feel like I have not lived up to the person that I should be in the previous days. That I haven't been a great husband. I haven't been a great father. Clearly not a great pastor. Woe is me. I'm ashamed. I'm a sinner. Why am I even doing this? It's why I need this covenant renewal that we that we do as God's people each week. I need to be reminded that God loves me and forgives me and accepts me, that I am His son, I am a part of His family, I am completely forgiven. And we ask the Holy Spirit to walk with us and help us in order to be better and in order to love Him more. But here's the thing from this passage. Stop and think about this in light of what I just said. He thinks your worship is beautiful. He's not angry with you. He's not mad at you. He is not pushing you aside. He loves you. He forgives you. And He thinks your worship is beautiful. Let that be an encouragement to you this morning. Take that to heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this good word. We thank You that You are such an encouragement to us through the gospel by the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, may we never forget that our worship is beautiful to You. That You long for Your people to come into Your presence and to lift up their hearts to You. Lord God, thank You for the grace that You show us in every direction. Horizontally, vertically, in every way. We do not deserve such a wonderful and gracious love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.